Hello, ASPN listeners. This is Erica Sears, host of Big Tourism, a show on the American Shoreline Podcast Network that provides a perspective into the complicated and intricate world of tourism and, maybe more importantly, into the world of destination management. If you have a big idea or case study for big tourism that you think is worth spotlighting, please shoot me a message on LinkedIn and maybe it'll be on the pod. Speaking of LinkedIn, I promise I'm not an affiliate for this online professional network, but I'm here to say I love it. Hi, I'm Erica and I'm addicted to LinkedIn. (laughs) There are numerous reasons for this addiction, but the main one is that it's actually a stellar networking tool when used properly. And I have met many people I wouldn't have otherwise known. One of those serendipitous connections is here on the show today. Katie Dar is currently a Sea Grant Canals Fellow for NOAA and brings a wealth of knowledge and unique visitor management experiences to big tourism. While completing her fellowship with NOAA, which we'll jump into, she's also completing a Sustainable Tourism Destination Management Certificate from George Washington University. Thanks for joining me on the show today, Katie. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, so um, we chatted after connecting on LinkedIn. And one of the things that I always find really unique about people in our roles is the path that they took to get there. And although we are starting to see clear educational and career paths to land a job in this realm, most people have to arrive to their destination management role in a unique way. So I was thinking that we could highlight two of your former experiences before we chat about your current fellowship, because those other experiences are just perfect for our listeners who are probably working on similar topics on their part of the American shoreline. Does that sound good to you? Sounds great. All right. ASPN listeners, prepare for takeoff, please. ASPN production crew, please take your seats for takeoff because we are going south to Ecuador where Katie worked as a visitor site monitor at Galapagos National Park. So Katie, what part of the national park were you in and why were visitors coming to that destination? Like what were the activities they were doing there specifically? So I was in the Galapagos for three months doing a study abroad program through the University of Miami. Um, And I lived on Isla Isabella there. And my site that I was monitoring with the national park actually wasn't officially part of the national park, um, but it was still managed by uh, the Galapagos National Park. So I worked, well, volunteered at Concha de Perla, uh, which is this beautiful little sheltered cove um, that's right near the main boat pier. So it's very accessible, but still protected and sheltered. Um, And it's one of the few places that visitors can explore on the islands without being accompanied by a guide. So if you want to go anywhere that's within the national park um, or marine reserve realms, you need to have a park guide with you. Uh, And since Concha de Perla is technically outside of the national park, uh, visitors can come without a guide. So I think that's a huge draw for folks to come to that space. But uh, 
more than that, it's just the most magical place I've ever been. So there's this wooden path that guides you through this lush mangrove forest down to the sheltered lagoon. And on the rocks, you have these Sally Lightfoot crabs that are just skittering about and marine iguanas just hanging around. Um, and then once you dip into the water, you can see penguins, sea turtles, sea lions, white tip reef sharks, and a multitude of you know colorful fish like damselfish, parrotfish, rainbow wrasses and butterfly fish. So it's truly, uh, you know, absolutely incredible. One of the most spectacular (laughs) places you've ever been. And, uh, you know, I'd say that's probably the biggest draw for visitors. And then the bonus is that you don't need a guide to, to go there and it's very accessible. Yeah, that's that's unique. And I know when we talked on the phone, I mentioned, I think I was in Ecuador a year before you were there. And I lived in a town called Puerto Lopez, which is further up the coast. And it was called the poor man Galapagos. <laughs> and I think it's because we didn't have penguins. Yeah. Like that must be why. Um, but that sounds absolutely incredible. And, and that's unique. Um, you know, in a lot of the work that we do, we really encourage people to go with guides just because it seems like they, a lot of people don't know what they're doing or they damage natural resources on accident. Um, but of course there's always sort of that audience of people that wants to do things on their own. Um, did you notice, or do you see any patterns in where most of the visitors seem to be from? Like what demographic or country? Uh, so definitely a lot of visitors from the U S, um, and, uh, from Ecuador, obviously the mainland. Um, and then a lot of German visitors as well. I would say those were the big three groups, but from other places in Europe and South America also. Yeah. I, yeah, I remember there also being kind of a mix and a lot, a lot of us, um, visitors down there as well. And it's always interesting. It seems like in a couple of different places that I lived sort of that German demographic, they are adventurers. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me that they wouldn't want a guide that they would want to go do it themselves. Um, so not too surprising. So while you were there, you collected 20 hours of baseline park data on visitor activity um, as this visitor site monitor. So can you walk us through this a little bit? What did your average day look like? How are you collecting this data? So I monitored the site twice a week in the morning from like 7.30 to 8.30 with one other person. Um, So all of the data I collected was observational. Um, I was given a data sheet from the Galapagos National Park that asked me to keep track of the party size, uh, whether visitors were coming from Ecuador or visiting from another country, which required me to do some guessing sometimes. But, uh, you know, I did my best. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You're just like trying to listen to what language. Like, oh, I got a I got a hello. We must have a German. Absolutely. (laughs) There's a lot of that. Um, You know, what activities they were participating in, whether they were snorkeling or just Um, walking the boardwalk or doing some bird watching, things like that. Um, And I was also supposed to note if they broke any of the park rules. So going off trail, (laughs) attempting to feed or touch wildlife, taking flash photography of wildlife, or if they weren't abiding Mm -hmm. by leave no trace principles, either by littering or, you know, say pulling a seed off of uh, a mangrove. Um, Unfortunately, I was told I could not intervene if I saw any of those (laughs) negative behaviors occurring. So that was probably the biggest challenge for me working on this project. Um, But that being said, because these observations took place so early in the morning. Um, It wasn't very crowded ever. uh, And there were not large parties coming in. So I I would have been curious to do this monitoring at other times of day as well. But this was just uh, the time that they had scheduled me for. 
Sure. And so what were some of the major behaviors that you noticed um, while watching people in the morning? People love to try to touch the animals, which, um, (laughs) you know, sea lions look very friendly and dog-like. And uh, especially in the Galapagos, they're pretty chill. They just lay about on any of the human-made structures. Um, So it it seems inviting almost, um, but they are very aggressive if you try to touch them. Uh, And it's a bad idea and it's against the park rules. So please don't do that if you find yourself in the Galapagos. Yeah, people would try to touch the iguanas, um, the sea lions especially, and uh, that was probably the hardest thing to watch. Uh, And also, as you walk through that... uh, you know, wooden path, that boardwalk, uh, you are going through, you're, you know, you're flanked by mangroves on either side and it's very beautiful. And, uh, people would just reach up and pull down on the mangroves and pop off a seed pod here and there. So it, that was also not great to see, but a lot of people did just come there to snorkel and not touch anything. So that was great. Sure. And so at the end of your, um, I guess, volunteering there, what recommend, what recommendations did you make to park management, man, to park management about visitor usage? And did they implement any of your recommendations? So my place was simply to make those observations and collect that data. Um, I'm, to my knowledge, this was the first time that they were collecting any sort of visitor use data. So, you know, 20 hours at that one particular time of day, twice a week, certainly isn't enough to uh, make any large management decisions about. Uh, In hindsight, I have some recommendations based on what I know now and what I observed. Uh, I think it would be great if they could have some sort of in-flight video uh, that went over the rules for the Galapagos, similar to the video that Palau put out about um, how to behave responsibly while you're visiting Mm -hmm. and not cause harm to the environment. Uh, Most visitors coming to Galapagos have to take a two-hour flight from the mainland, and so you have a captive audience at that time to engage them with this information. Uh, So I think Mm -hmm. finding a creative way to share that besides the brochure you get when you come into the park, and it is all those rules are listed on the the park placards and um, trailheads and things, but it's easy enough for it's people not to ignore. As compelling. Yeah. Yeah. It's really looking that, and I know we've talked about this too, is getting that compelling messaging out. And sometimes that's through videos, that's through social media ads. Um, and so we do see a lot of really important national parks in the United States as well that relies on pretty standard looking signage. And I think it's kind of unique sometimes because they expect people to actually stop and read it while kids are trying to, you know, they're trying to, people are juggling like their kids out of their car and they're lost, they didn't know where to go. And um, so that's definitely, a, that's an awesome takeaway that you got. And I'm sure that that will continue <laughs> in every project that you work yeah. on. Um, so you must, I mean, it almost sounds, I don't know if you watch the show Parks and Rec, but you are like, in the Galapagos, there are penguins and iguanas, and you are just watching people from all over the world try to interact with these animals. It's rather comical sounding. Um, do you have any favorite stories from your time volunteering there or, or a memory that really stuck with you? Um, I think my favorite memory was just uh, those walks out on the boardwalk to do my observations in the morning. It was so quiet and peaceful. And there was one time I was walking out there and a sea lion was nursing um, 
just in the middle of the boardwalk, which was so beautiful and special. Uh, Of course, challenging because it was in my way. So I had to, you know, stand six feet back and wait until they they moved. But uh, it was a really nice thing to see. And I was happy to have that sort of sea line traffic jam holding up my commute that morning. (laughs) (laughs) There are worse things that could happen. Absolutely. Well, incredible. We're going to pack up Katie and make our way up to her next experience um, further north on the Pacific Ocean to the great state of, you all guessed it, Oregon. Now, I promise I don't actively seek out Oregonians or past Oregonians, but we're a cool group of people and we do cool stuff. (laughs) So uh, you are a graduate research assistant at Oregon State University. Um, Can you describe for our audience what research you were conducting on the Oregon coast? Sure. So I decided to attend Oregon State University for my master's in marine resource management after my experience in the Galapagos um, had really opened my eyes to the human dimension side of conservation. So I I wanted to understand how we can better engage with folks, Um, again, based on that experience in the Galapagos of seeing people not necessarily actively engaging with the guidance that was put out by the National Park. Uh, My work uh, as a graduate research assistant and my research there was a little bit different, not focused on tourism, but I had created and evaluated an exhibit about Oregon's deep sea to gauge its efficacy as an outreach tool to engage Oregonians with policy relevant deep sea science. Um, So I worked with a benthic ecologist uh, whose work focused on the deep sea, Andrew Thurber, um, to really take his science and package it in a way that was memorable and meaningful to the public. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Um, Obviously a very unique experience. So you have this exhibit and did you have kind of a hypothesis before you started this, like of things that you expected would be impactful to changing, you know, local Oregonians and visitors that came um, to their understanding of the deep sea? Or what were your thoughts going into this project? So rather than a hypothesis, um, we were really focused on exploring a few research questions more broadly. Uh, The design of the project was iterative in nature. So uh, looking at how we can best use an exhibit to advance public literacy about the deep sea over both the short and long term. So we would put out an iteration, uh, do an evaluation of it and see what needed to be changed to better engage folks with it. Should additional elements be added? Should the text be changed? Things like that. And also looking at what were visitor perceptions of the deep sea and whether or not that changed after interacting with the exhibit. Sure. And I, so obviously looked pretty thoroughly at your LinkedIn. Um, (laughs) That's what I do. Um, And there was a line under your description of of this work that you did, this experience. And it says, monitored 30 hours of visitor interactions with the exhibit using cyber lab video and audio tools in conjunction with surveys to gauge changes in visitor perception of the deep sea. And I had to chuckle a little bit just thinking of almost like you being behind two-way glass, you know, like watching people look at the exhibit. And I can just imagine some kid walking up and being like, I'm bored. And on your microphone, you're like, your lack of knowledge is boring. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, obviously you weren't doing that. So could you explain to us a little bit how you were monitoring people that were you know, interacting with this exhibit? It was a lot less sophisticated than that. Um, I literally hid behind a fish tank that was adjacent to where my exhibit was. Um, and I had a stopwatch and I would just uh, keep track of how long people were there. And if they stayed for 30 seconds, I would pop out from behind the fish tank and ask them to take a survey, Um, which also involved a lot of watching people look at my exhibit for a second, walk away, or they'd have their eyes on my exhibit and then something else would catch their attention and they'd go over there instead. So it was, you know, a heartbreaking process at times, but (laughs) yeah. And so, um, So every now and then, hopefully often, when someone stayed for 30 seconds and you came flying out behind your aquarium, um, your fish tank, what what kind of answers were you getting from people when you were interviewing them? Um, What were they saying about the exhibit? So just for some additional context, uh, before I hid behind the fish tank, I conducted baseline uh, surveys, and that was just with individuals coming into the Science Center, uh, having not interacted with the exhibit yet. So uh, just getting a baseline of what the average visitor's knowledge and perception of the deep sea is. Um, And so that baseline group was separate from the post-use and follow-up groups, um, just so they didn't have uh, those questions primed in their head when they were looking at the exhibit. We wanted to make sure that their uh, responses post-exhibit were you know, the result of naturalistic interactions with the exhibit and that they weren't looking for keywords that they saw in the survey initially. Um, so it was not surprising that folks, uh, the knowledge questions uh, were answered more correctly after they were, uh, after folks had interacted with the exhibit. Uh, it's not really a surprise that if you don't know about a topic, I present you with some information about the topic, you get a quiz, you will pass the quiz. Um, So that wasn't super surprising. But what was surprising, um, and maybe not surprising, but promising was the fact that people retained that information one month after their visit. So it wasn't something that they just took in at the time and then threw out, you know, brain dumped later on, Uh, it really stuck with them. And that's what we were trying to do. So that that was great to see. Uh, We also found um, regarding perception that visitors to the Science Center tended to agree with more protection-oriented statements about the deep sea. So an example of these types of questions, we asked them to rank on a scale of, you know, strongly disagree to strongly disagree uh, if they, how they felt about the following statements. So the primary value of Oregon's deep sea is to provide for humans. Uh, And then the opposite of that question would be Oregon's deep sea has value whether humans are present or not. So people tended on the uh, protection oriented statements versus the use oriented statements, which again is not super surprising given that visitors to zoos, aquariums and science centers tend to have more pro environmental values. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. I, when I looked at that um, and you also have a, a final research paper, which people can look at. What was the title of that? It's a long one. So uh, <laughs> take a deep breath. Um, so it's <laughs> the deep sea and me using a science center exhibit to promote lasting public literacy and elucidate public perception of the deep sea. Um, and that is a brief report published in frontiers and marine science, which is an open access journal. So you can check that out, uh, without any paywalls if you're interested. Um, and it's a lot easier <laughs> to read than my thesis. So recommend that. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because um, all of us, you know, wherever you are on the American shoreline, you probably have some kind of scientific ocean focused issue or impact on the Oregon coast. You know, you were talking about deep sea. We also have five marine reserves and there's, we're always trying to find ways to get people to care. And um, I know you said that your, your project was really focused on Oregonians, but you know, in the tourism realm, we consider anybody traveling 50 miles or more to be a visitor. So I'm guessing that a lot of the people that you interacted with were actually visitors. Um, so it was really encouraging to hear, you know, like, yes, an exhibit actually could change someone and educate them even a month after, like you had mentioned. Um, what would you say to people that are thinking about creating an exhibit maybe on their slice of American shoreline paradise, um, you know, creating an exhibit to create some kind of educational value to visitors or locals? So we found that the framing of information is really crucial. Um, and this is not a novel finding. A lot of other studies have found this as well. But in our iterations, um, when we adjusted the framing uh, to be more aligned with what our audience knew already and what they wanted to know, we had much better results um, and higher engagement. So it's really important to meet your audience where they are and be able to translate, you know, highly technical, potentially overwhelming information into a form that's really more appropriate and interesting to the experiences and concerns and context of your audience. Um, and we found that if we were able to use local place-based examples, uh, that really resonated with our audience and also allowed us to leverage their existing knowledge and conceptual frameworks to foster this sense of place with the deep sea, which can be challenging to do because that's not a place that these visitors will get to visit. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's incredible. I definitely encourage our audience to check that report out. Um, I think that it's really beneficial to everybody that's working in this educational piece, especially if you need, you know, I just keep thinking about on the Oregon coast, we have five marine reserves. We need people, both locals and visitors to care about it so that they can continue to be marine reserves. So incredible work. Um, we are now going to pick up and fly cross-continental um, and that should land us to where you are right now as a Sea Grant Canal Fellow with the Marine Protected Areas Center. So this is kind of a COVID sounding question, but where are you currently located and in what region are you working? Um, seems like that can be two different places these days. Yes. So I am located in Silver Spring, Maryland, and I have a beautiful view of my NOAA office building from my bedroom window uh, that I can oh, stare nice. at longingly <laughs> while I work from home. <laughs> um, and yeah, my placement is with the National Marine Protected Areas Center, which sits in NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries headquarters. Uh, so I'm at the headquarters level, but I also do a lot of work with site staff as well, um, particularly working in the Florida Keys this year. Nice. And before we jump into the Florida Keys, um, can you just briefly describe what your fellowship is? Um, you know, how did you get it? What's the duration of it? How many fellows are there? Good question. So the Canas Fellowship is a year-long fellowship that provides experience working on coastal and marine management and policy issues at the federal level. And this can either be uh, in the executive branch offices, um, so I'm an executive fellow, or in legislative offices on the Hill. 
uh, I should know the number offhand, but I don't. I know that 69 fellows were accepted for my cohort. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the breakdown was. I think there were 14 legislative fellows, and then I think some executive fellows may have decided on a different career path instead of the fellowship. So I I think the number is not does not quite add up to 69, but (laughs) it's around there. Yeah. And it's an impressive group. I think we've had some different fellows on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And I have spoken to a few myself and every time, you know, even when you call me, I'm just like, it's so impressive what you're doing. (laughs) Um, So let's go into the juicy stuff. What are you doing? You had just mentioned the Florida Keys. Um, So what are you up to with that? So broadly, my portfolio is focused on ocean uses, uh, but specifically, I work on several projects related to visitor use. Uh, I'm a newly minted NOAA representative on the Interagency Visitor Use Management Council, and I'm super excited about that. Um, That council includes representatives from the Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service, Park Service, Army Corps, Fish and Wildlife, and NOAA. Uh, And the mission there is to provide guidance on visitor use management policies and effective interagency tools for visitor management. Um, And I can't report much more on that because I have my first meeting later today. Uh, So it is a a new position for me, which I'm very excited about. Um, And the council also developed the interagency visitor use management framework that they put out in 2016. Uh, And that is what I'm using in my work with the Florida Keys. So I am working with the keys to explore different visitor use management strategies that will reduce impacts to uh, the sanctuary environment while improving visitor experience. Um, And unrelated to the keys, but some other stuff I'm excited about that I'm working on. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm working on responsible recreation projects, including updating our system-wide wildlife viewing guidelines to reflect a positive behavior model. Uh, that's better aligned with social marketing principles and behavioral science. Uh, And I'm also contributing to a project that uh, allows us to partner with and better engage hospitality and recreation businesses uh, in the gateway communities to our sanctuaries. Uh, Yeah, happy to talk about any of (laughs) this. Yeah, so you have a lot going on. Let's, um, Let's jump into what you were just mentioning about the responsible recreation. Um, Is that essentially moving away from telling people what they can't do to what they can do? Exactly. Uh, A lot of our messaging in the past and not just sanctuaries, but any sort of, you know, best practices, guidance um, is focused on, you know, don't approach the animal, don't feed the animal, don't touch the animal. um, Mm -hmm. And people can get tired of that really quick and sort of zone out and not engage with that material. So instead shifting to uh, what you can do. So respect the animal space and including the why that's important. So we're trying to, to emphasize the what you can do and why you should do it right up front uh, and then provide some more of that, uh, you know, don't language uh, really packaged in there, but not have that be the main message. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. 
Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Yeah, and this is a huge conversation. I know we have been working in this space for quite a while. The state of Oregon has as well. Um, we actually did an experiment a couple of years ago with our social media around baby seals. Um, they they have their pupping season in the spring and a lot of times the moms go out fishing and they leave their babies on the beach and then visitors try to rescue them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is wild. I cannot imagine trying to load up a baby seal in the back of my car, but people try to do it. And so what we did is we tried two types of messaging. One said, you know, don't touch baby seals. And the other one was like, oh, look at the baby, mama's fishing, you know, don't want her to get lost, leave her alone. And what we saw in the results of that is when we said don't touch the baby seal people freaked out and they're like i'm gonna kill the baby seal and then other people were like i'm gonna kill the people that are gonna kill the baby <laughs> seal if people did not respond well to the no we had to shut it down whereas the one where we kind of use more of a cutesy adorable sort of the why because mom's fishing and we'll come back um it had a ton of shares people engaged with it it was very positive so this is something that's kind of going on I'm guessing internationally, but definitely at a national level where we have to move away from this no language, which I think if we really think about it, almost sounds like a nagging older relative, like, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. And you're like, I'm going to do whatever I want versus like, like your, your fun aunt or maybe like your fun relative. It's like, Oh, but did you know this and this? And you're like, Oh, okay. Um, so I'm glad to hear that you're working in it. And, um, it's always like reassuring when you hear someone else is also moving in the same direction. So yeah. I'm not crazy. And just another point about that quickly. Um, you know, there's a lot of shame based messaging also, uh, and that can work sometimes if you're like, talking to a friend, you're like, oh, you're really going to do that, that kind of thing. But it can come across really sort of condescending and not well received if it's coming from, say, a government agency. <laughs> so right. um, trying to be aware of our audience's trust in the source that it's coming from and what they think about the source, um, as well as, again, their context and their values and how can we best craft this message to to land with them. And there are some situations where you really can't escape that don't do this language, but um, there are also many more where you can find a creative, still effective, direct way to frame it more positively. 
Right. And I think when it comes to that kind of that condescending language too, I think two things come to mind is one, especially with visitors that are coming, if they've never experienced your unique environments, they don't know that what they're doing is wrong. (laughs) And so it's like shaming a child because they don't know what they're doing. And then I think secondly, sometimes there are, you know, historically disenfranchised groups um, that may have not had, you know, generations of families that brought them to your part of the shoreline or your unique natural habitat. So again, like moving away from that condescending language, because not everyone's really had the privilege of experiencing your unique environment, I think is also something totally worth um, considering. I would say there was a case study up here um, near Cannon Beach, which I'm guessing maybe you visited Cannon Beach when you lived in Oregon. (laughs) Um, there's this really awesome volunteer group, um, the Haystack Rock Protection. Uh-oh, I'm going to forget what it's I called. I think it's now. Awareness it Group. Awareness Program. program yes, yeah. HRAP. <laughs> and so they have struggled with this where they told people no, and then people challenged them or, you know, anyways, like a year or two ago, they had all these signs that said, don't be that, don't be that guy. And it had pictures of somebody doing everything wrong, like stepping on a tidal area, you know, picking up sea anemones. And what they saw was that visitors would call out other visitors and be like, don't be that guy. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only kind of almost condescending thing that kind of worked well. Um, But yeah, I think looking at that messaging is super important and sometimes is a little daunting because you're like, okay, we have to be funny, but it's still serious, but not condescending, but yes, but not no. Um, So yeah, that's a unique, I'm glad you're working in that space. Um, Hopefully we can connect later too and see what all you came up with. Definitely. Something else, something else that you mentioned is that you're working with hospitality businesses. I didn't quite catch the rest. What is that project that you're working on? Um, So there is an existing program in the Florida Keys called the Blue Star Fishing and Diving Program, um, which is a voluntary recognition program recognizing operators who encourage responsible and sustainable diving and fishing practices. Um, And so they have to adhere to certain sustainable practices as well as providing their guests with a briefing about the sanctuary and best practices um, for fishing, diving, or snorkeling, whatever it is, the activity that they're doing uh, in order to reduce harmful impacts to sanctuary resources. So I'm a part of a project that's looking to sort of scale that program up and out throughout the sanctuary system, um, as well as expand it to other uh, sectors beyond diving and fishing. Uh, That's still very much in development, but I think it's a great way to connect our story, um, our sanctuary story to these businesses and show how uh, we really add value to their visitors experience um, and how they can help us help them basically in the long run. Yeah, that's a, we, you know, that's a unique thing when, when you're trying to work the private business, whose bottom line might not be, you know, right out trying to protect the environment, but people are coming to your hotel for that phenomenal view. And if that view doesn't exist, people won't come to your hotel, you know? So sometimes it's kind of like, what comes first? Like, should you help us protect the environment? Should, you know, um, so that'll be a really unique, a unique thing to work on. So are you, do you think you'll be focusing on hotels or what other sectors are you brainstorming about? Um, so my responsibility was basically to come up with some uh, summary documents that looked at existing programs uh, and compared existing programs for fishing, diving and uh, hotels. 
there are hundreds of hotel recognition <laughs> and certification programs. So that's definitely a little daunting. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what this is going to look like in the end, but whether we do it through this recognition program or not, I think it's so valuable to engage these businesses in our gateway communities and make that connection stronger and uh, really show how we're a part of the community and how, um, you know, they're connected to the sanctuary as well. Yeah. And I, so we've touched briefly on you're joining a new council, which your first meeting is later today. Yeah. So I won't grill you about that. Um, some of that responsible recreation messaging, you're going to be working this sort of, you know, um, sustainable certification. So I guess going back to the Florida Keys and, you know, the Marine protected areas, the national Marine protected areas, um, as kind of a whole, do you have an idea of what, and I know I asked you this for the Ecuador situation, but what kind of visitors are coming to the Florida Keys? Where are they traveling from and what is it that they're doing there? You've just hit on one of the great challenges that we have in sanctuaries. So unlike Park Service or Forest Service, um, we don't have any sort of mandate to um, count how many visitors we have coming in uh, every year. So historically, we really haven't collected that data. Um, it's also pretty challenging because we have porous borders. There's no one access point to get into the sanctuary. Some of them are pretty far offshore. Some of them are right offshore. So it, it makes it really challenging to gather that information. Um, there's been a lot of work that's being done um, to figure out ways that we can figure out who our visitors are um, and what they're doing. Uh, but we don't have great numbers on that right now. Uh, I will say that there's a lot you can do in sanctuaries. So, uh, you know, different boating, fishing, snorkeling, diving, uh, kayaking, lots of recreation opportunities. But as far as how many people are doing that, when they're doing it and where they're doing it, um, we don't have such great data about that. Yeah, that must be frustrating to someone who's willing to hide behind a fish tank, you know, to get that kind of info. <laughs> someone that's willing to be there with the clipboard. Um, it's interesting how those two former experiences where you were doing a lot of observation, um, you know, that's such that, that is such great info to have. And then coming coming into a new project where you're trying to implement things maybe without some of that information. Um, so in a perfect world, um, and maybe a longer fellowship that wasn't just a year. Would going back and get, getting some of that data be worth it to you? Um, I think it's a huge undertaking. So it would have to, you know, that, that's more of a career question, I feel like, than a, a yeah. fellowship question. And it is really promising that there are ongoing efforts to collect that data. Um, I, I think it's important to have a better idea of how many people are coming and, and what they're doing, especially if we need to figure out visitor use management strategies. Um, when we're talking about potentially limiting access, um, it, that leaves a pretty bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, especially if they're used to a certain level of access and then it feels like we're taking something away from mm -hmm. them. Um, you know, our legal mandate, we're authorized by the National Marine Sanctuaries Act to, you know, 
facilitate to the greatest extent compatible uh, with the primary or facilitate these other activities like recreation and commercial activities. Um, but those other activities have to be compatible with the primary objective of resource protection. So, you know, the phrase limited access, again, can put people on edge and make it feel like we're taking something away here. But really, our goal is to preserve these resources and make sure they have them um, in perpetuity for people to enjoy. Uh, but it can be hard to make those kind of decisions to limit access. And what level do you limit access to if we don't have um, those numbers or uh, studies about what people view as acceptable levels of crowding. But I've seen in other places uh, like Molokini in Hawaii um, and in Thailand, they've done some of these studies about what visitors see as an acceptable level of crowding. And there's not always follow through um, in management implementations because it can be hard to get stakeholders on board. So it's a big, big, uh, yeah. multifaceted problem. Um, but I think that, that we can still make headway on it without... Um, those firm numbers. We know that tourism in the Keys was like 3 million people in 1995, approximately. Uh, mm-hmm. But like pre-COVID and like 2018, that number was sitting at approximately 5.5 million. So almost wow. doubled. And back in 1999, there was an article from the New York Times with the title, Crowded Florida Keys, A Paradise in Trouble. So this issue has sort of been a slow burn. Um, in terms of overuse and crowding and water quality issues and environmental degradation. So it's something that people have been seeing for a while. And, uh, you know, they are, there are a lot of um, stakeholders who are open to coming up with ways to deal with it. But I think it, it will be hard to roll back that unlimited access in some of these spaces. Yeah. So two things there. One is, and this is a question that I just it's always interesting to hear how people define this is how, how do the communities, how did they define overuse or how did they decide that they were at the tipping point? Any idea there? I don't have a great answer for that. You know, I think anecdotally, it's just people have observed these changes and, you know, scientifically changes in the environment have been documented um, through our 2011 condition report from sanctuaries, but even outside of sanctuaries in the Keys, I think there's just been this feeling that there are a lot more people there than there should be. Um, there hasn't, mm-hmm. to my knowledge, nobody has done a sort of study that, well, we've reached capacity and now we have to roll that back. That's just sort of been the feeling. Yeah. And I don't know, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head where people are like, this is it. We, re- we reach the point, you know, and I think that is something that we talk about here in stakeholder meetings is if you have a local that was used to having no neighbors here 50 years ago, and now they have neighbors, um, to them, they're like, we are overcrowded, we're overrun. For somebody else that's from like a highly populated area, not a rural area, they're like, oh, wide open spaces. So sometimes it's, it's interesting talking about how do we define the tipping point or overuse. And I think you're hitting on it when you can start seeing some of some degradation on natural resources. Um, you know, you start seeing maybe more waste or trash along the sides of roads. If your local infrastructure can't handle it anymore. Um, I don't have the answer either. I was, you know, hoping, <laughs> Katie, that you just had the answer and I'd be done with my career. No, and, no. <laughs> well, and, and like you said, I think it's very context dependent and people have different thresholds for these things. Um, 
And the type of experience you're expecting down there will vary based on whether you're coming for, you know, more nature-based ecotourism experience versus wanting to, um, you know, have jet ski and like do things like that. So it really depends what audience segment we're targeting and what stakeholders. So it's, it's a challenging question. (laughs) And then um, speaking of stakeholders and even the idea that, you know, your, the role of the agency is to really protect these, um, these marine assets into, you know, forever, basically. So that's really like that high level view, you know, really long distance view Um, but how does, how do you bring that back to local communities? Or when you talk about your stakeholders, who are your stakeholders and how do you engage with these communities and sort of their perception of their, you know, the marine protected areas, um, especially working virtually from Maryland? So the sanctuary system is really wonderful in the sense that these places, these sanctuary sites are managed under a participatory process. So each sanctuary site has a sanctuary advisory council, which consists of representatives from the community, basically in different sectors, whether it be tourism, fishing, diving. Um, So we make it a point to actively engage the community in these decisions. And the uh, Florida Keys has been updating their sanctuary management plan for a while, and it's been a process of going back and forth um, with, you know, sanctuaries with their other agency partners, uh, both state and other federal agencies. Um, and it's been this very iterative, collaborative um process to get that stakeholder feedback and try to find a solution that really is going to work the best for everyone involved. Um, I think that's a unique characteristic of the way that sanctuaries is managed. It's we're not just coming down and making decisions like, okay, we've decided that this is how we want to manage this. Um, We're really taking that public comment and the sanctuary advisory council um, comments into not just into consideration, but into practice as well. So that public process, I think, is really valuable. I think it's really valuable, too. And I'm really happy to hear that you have all those different sectors there together. Um, And those are like the meetings that are actually so fun to attend in person when you have somebody from the fishing industry, the tourism industry, just like an outspoken local citizen. Um, You know, sometimes those are kind of wild meetings, but they're so, so important to get those different perspectives in. And I think when you go through that public process and you come up with a decision that, you know, the majority of the people at the table are happy with, then their industries will help with the management side of that, you know, and kind of following suit. So I am really happy to hear that. You guys have already got that going on. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And there's... um there's a series of uh, volunteer opportunities with sanctuaries. Um, another way to engage, you know, local and concerned people. Uh, the Keys, for example, has on the water volunteers called Team Ocean uh, that goes out during heavily um, visited times, like holiday weekends and things, to uh, the busier reef sites and informs other boaters about the sanctuary, the zones, and really encourages responsible use of sanctuary resources. So, you know, I I think, again, that gets back to uh, who the messenger is and having 
someone that doesn't work for the sanctuary, but is just, you know, an impassioned volunteer telling you what the rules are as opposed to, you know, someone from law enforcement that can land differently. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it goes back to what we were saying about that, that creative messaging, you know, is that when people are, you know, you and I have talked about this, the visitor life cycle. So is that when someone is on their computer at home in Oregon and they say, I want to go to the Florida Keys and they look at a website and it has, wow, do you know that there are these marine sanctuaries here? You're like, oh, okay. Maybe you take a note of it. Maybe you don't. Then you book your hotel. And when the hotel sends you your reservation, it says, hey, just so you know, we are located outside of marine sanctuary. Here's some of the do's and don'ts in a creative way. And then on your flight over, you know, there are so many ways into the point where you're actually in the marine protected area or the sanctuary or the reserve. And then you actually have somebody there that's like, hey, we're so glad you're here. here. Did you know, like, this is how we do things here. And this is why I think it's it's a huge undertaking. But when people really nail that visitor lifecycle messaging from the point that someone is thinking of your destination to the moment where they're putting their dipping their toes in your water, there are so many points of contact that you could have with a visitor to help mitigate some of these impacts that they are knowingly or unknowingly, you know, committing, um, is exciting and also very daunting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, how much time do you have left in your fellowship? How far are you into this? I've reached the halfway point. So I have another what? six months left. It's moved so fast and there's so much I want to do still. So yeah, well, even, though you haven't, even though you haven't completed it yet, what are some major takeaways um, that you already have from participating in this work? I think the most important thing this has really reinforced for me is the value in understanding how your work is connected to a larger ecosystem. Um, You know, not just the natural ecosystem, but the system in which your work is taking place. And especially right now, uh, working from home, uh, it can be really easy to get sort of tunnel vision on things and, uh, not think about who else you should be engaging or who else might have the answers for you. So taking a step back and thinking about where does my project fit in this larger scheme of things? Who else should I be talking to about this issue? Um, You know, in my own agency, beyond my own agency, um, to really get a more comprehensive picture, especially if you take a second to zoom out, realize that there's somebody who should be involved um, that hasn't been involved. It it can be kind of messy to involve those folks in at a later stage, um, especially if they felt they should have been there earlier, you know, so trying to keep track of um, what stakeholders I need to be engaging when. (laughs) Yes, Katie, that is music to my ears. That is what I spend so much of my time doing is who are we missing at the table? And I think some of the most frustrating parts of my job sometimes, and I'm sure yours too, is when you see someone and they're really good at their job and they are like a steam engine and they're moving right ahead. And you're like, wait, 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 I could be a part of this too. I have all these resources I can bring. Someone else is like, yeah, me too, me too. And that person's like, nope, this is the way we've always done it. We're going to keep going. And you're like, those partnerships and those resources and skills that everybody has, like when they are brought together, and I know I'm sounding like a total Pollyanna, <laughs> but when they are brought together, seriously, some very cool projects can come out of that. Um, so my final and bonus, I guess my bonus question for you, and this is a question that I asked on my very first episode to Andrew Grossman, who also works 
and destination management um, is how do you define destination management according to your own experiences um, that you've had? For everybody out there, there really isn't a definition for destination management, which makes it incredibly difficult to explain to my family what I do. Um, but it's because it does vary depending on what part you're in. So Katie, if you wouldn't mind sharing, you know, and you're just finishing up your certificate with the George Washington University in destination management. So putting all these pieces together that we've talked about today, how would you define it? So I think I have an aspirational definition. It's not necessarily oh, what I've seen in practice, but, um, you know, my dream definition of destination management and how I, I think it could best work um, from my experiences, it just describes the collaborative and coordinated processes that provide visitors with a unique place-based experience while supporting local communities and economies but not causing undue harm to natural or cultural resources. Yeah, I think that sounds pretty darn good to me. <laughs> even <laughs> even if it's aspirate, yeah. yeah. And I think I think the only thing that I would change now, I had a very similar definition, but the only thing that I would change now sort of in light of COVID is that destination management is relative to what is currently happening. Mm -hmm. So if your destination management and tourism, like I am, and tourism comes to a screeching halt, I don't just stop existing and neither does my organization, but you have to be able to pivot and maybe use some of your skills or your templates to give out public safety information or to connect different partners on a totally different topic. So I think in the past couple of months, that's something that I've taken is destination management has to be relevant to what is actually happening right now, but also taking into consideration how you got to where you are and kind of that future visioning, which we've talked about today as well. Um, because, you know, I think that there are people that maybe there was a topic 20 years ago that they're still really passionate about, but if it's not relevant now, then you're not going to have that collaboration or that local community support that you mentioned. So that's my only caveat that I've come up with. Um, yeah. It's an ongoing, I would agree. <laughs> it's an ongoing process. Adaptability is a huge component of that. And even, and any, any setting, not just destination management, being able to <laughs> adapt to the context uh, is hugely important. <laughs> Everybody's just like sitting at home, their makeshift home office, like, yep, yep, yep. Kids are like screaming. Yeah, I think we, we can all agree with that. Well, Katie, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on Big Tourism today. Listeners out there, if you are as impressed by Katie as I am, go and check out her da -da -da -da, LinkedIn. It's been 40 minutes since I last talked about LinkedIn. Um, thanks for joining us on another episode of Big Tourism on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. <laughs> <laughs>